0: friends and all you ilk welcome to a very special episode of the ss librarianship podcast Uh, we've got a lucky number seven for you today um, with two fantastic guests Uh, we're talking to our fellow information professionals and um, well in some cases library school graduates our friends uh, mary jingleski and matt ruin from slice Um, they're here to talk about some really amazing stuff uh, they did join us with Mind Grapes and so, um, got to hear a little bit about what's going on in their lives and that was really cool. Uh, we covered the gamut really from, uh, TV to gaming to, um, books and reading and, and all kinds of great stuff. So, um, do, do get, uh, excited for that. It was a great discussion. I think I'm definitely going to check
1: out uh, Sleepy Hollow now, thanks to Mary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite getting my fix with just watching Once Upon a Time. Uh, Yeah, the the second segment today is sort of an interesting one. Um, We've kind of combined our Where Do We Put This and our Class Z Z. segments. (laughs) Uh, Because really we're discussing copyright and it sort of spans both of those topics of discussion. It Mm. is a system of organizing content that's generated by authors and uh, television producers and corporations, which we get into a bit as well, but it's also an opportunity for librarians to kind of take a look at this um, from an information professional standpoint and think well some parts of this copyright system are a little broken might there be a way that we can help people understand it a bit better in our our capacity so that was a really interesting discussion i'm really really glad that we got a chance to talk to both matt and mary about that
0: yeah so i really hope you guys enjoy this week's uh episode we have a very spirited discussion it's uh, super duper fun uh i'm ali sullivan and i want to be the very best like no one ever was and I'm Sam Mills, and I'm a peacock baby. You gotta let me fly. <laughs> Let's get this one started. All right, so our guests have been kind enough to uh, to join us for Mind grapes as well as a uh, as well as a debate segment. Um, and uh, Mary, <laughs> you seemed particularly excited. Uh, to share what's been on your mind graves lately. So what
2: have uh, what have you been getting into this week? Oh, um, my new favorite TV show is Sleepy Hollow. And before you get your hopes up that Fox will cancel it, it has been renewed for a second season. So <laughs> I'm ecstatic at this Miracle point. I know, right? It took them long enough. And so um, basically Sleepy Hollow is based on the legend of Sleepy Hollow with the character of Ichabod Crane. Except in this case, Ichabod Crane has also kind of taken a Rip Van Winkle sort of situation in which he wakes up in modern day America after being asleep for a couple hundred years. So, um, his problems, it basically evolves around. Everyone thinks he's crazy because he insists he's from revolutionary war, uh, (laughs) uh, America, uh, and uh apparently his situation was uh he he was still it was still in the midst of the Revolutionary War when he like something happened and he woke up uh quite a few number of years later. Fell off a horse. Um <laughs> got kicked by a horse? S- not quite. I don't Did think it involve a horse. A horseman. Ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, with the resurrection of Ichabod Crane, there's also the resurrection of the Headless Horseman, uh, in which uh, I guess the Headless Horseman still likes to head people, and so that involves the local police, and so Ichabod Crane eventually crosses path with the local police, and his new BFF, well, not BFF, because she still has reasons to doubt his veracity, according to him at times. Um, but and he says veracity, and he says veracity, <laughs> in a uh, glorious British accent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically, uh, Lieutenant Abby Mills is his modern guide, and uh, they team up to, um, according to Ichabod Crane, uh, to battle against the headless horseman, who's apparently one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh which that immediately
0: days days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) exactly so it basically the tv show definitely takes on sort of like a supernatural sort of like twist that i particularly don't care about i just care about the characters like it's like oh that's nice that there's like witchcraft or something like that you guys keep on mentioning as a plot point but you know i just really care about like seeing it Ip- ichabod crane like navigated tv and like indoor plumbing and <laughs> <laughs> so wait the implication is that the the headless horseman who is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse mm-hmm. came
0: before and then just what like like fucked off again
2: um well ichabod crane was instrumental in stopping him
0: Ew, I guess that would make some sense. So Yeah, Ichabod but there's Crane some sort is of
2: Jesus? N- not no, I okay. probably shouldn't have used the word resurrection. <laughs> they they really because they really they really don't they're just like, oh he went he went as Ichabod Crane went asleep. You know, and uh it's explained in the pilot. Ah. Okay. So I'm trying so not to no give spoilers. too much away. No but but I have not to admits. admit I really love the cast. Uh, I really love the characters. I love the banter. I mean, when you have a, especially Ichabod, like, I know I'm biased. I love I love Lieutenant Abby, or as Ichabod says, Lieutenant Abby Mills. <laughs> yes. um, but it's one of those things where um, Ichabod Crane will say things like, do you mean to tell me that these baked goods cost $4.95 and that there's a uh, uh and and then Abby goes, you know, like don't don't divert off of what we were talking about, you know, like you know, stop stop distracting from what we're trying to talk about. And he goes and she says something where she uses the word insane or something like that. Like mm-hmm. I'm insane to believe you or something. He's like, "You know what's insane?" A ten percent levy on, on baked goods, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He's like he he continually like references the Revolutionary War and kind of sort of like I can't believe I went through all of this to like come come to a place where there's the Starbucks. The country like that. Yeah, it's sort of like why is there a Starbucks in that livery stable that used to <laughs> used to be there? That's
1: great. So
2: um, but also like uh, another favorite character um is uh, is a guest star. Mm-hmm. so supposedly but he's a favorite guest star in my opinion. It's uh who and the character is Andy 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 Andy. I just remember Andy because oh, Andy Brooks, Officer Andy Brooks, who's a coworker of Abby's. Um but he's played by John Chow. Oh, from nice. Star Trek. Sulu. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I from love Zulu. from from the reboot, which I understand Sam. I know those feelings, but um, we feel those feels. Yeah. We feels though, yes, we definitely feel those <laughs> but hey, feels. It sounds like
1: now he's associated with a franchise that has slightly better female characters.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> amazing female characters! <laughs> I just like it's just like Ichabod Crane is amusing because he's modern day, but like Abby is so ah oh, such an awesome character. She kicks butt and ah, mm-hmm. all the feels. So I, think um, I just. Sold.
0: Yeah, and I, I've Hopefully. heard I've heard interesting things about it because Abby is a, a an
2: actress of color as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or the she's a Abby's a character, a woman of color. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So was the actress, but anyway, but yeah, no. But <laughs> oh, it's, it's great, great, great because, because she was there. because she, she basically she's basically Lieutenant Abby Mills is this female authoritarian figure who's a woman of color. Of course, Ichabod Crane is quite not used to this you know with things like (laughs) feminism and emancipation and all sorts of other things going on he's like wait what (laughs) um but uh apparently he's ichabod is apparently a very cultured man being a former history professor of oxford before he turned to work for general washington and uh he can roll with it he can roll with it because he was with the abolitionists and all sorts of things like that. It's awfully convenient mindsets.
3: for the storytellers.
2: It is. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to make
1: him too unlikable. Yeah.
3: <laughs> He's not Sherlock. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh.
1: yeah. It sort of sounds like it maybe has some stuff in common with the new not Sherlock but
0: uh Elementary. elementary? Yeah. Yeah. Which I also haven't watched, so I haven't I've,
2: I've heard
0: I've him. heard varying things about Elementary, mm-hmm.
2: but I like Lucy Liu. She is pretty cool. And Johnny yeah. Lee Miller, I he is a favorite of mine in the More recent adaptation of Emma miniseries, (laughs) which is uh, the Lindsay Bennett people are making an Emma now. Yes, Emma approved, but yeah, uh, he was Johnny Lee Miller is also known as not only being Mr. Knightley in Emma in a recent adaptation of Emma, but he was also um playing Edward in a version of Mansfield Park as well. Uh, for those he's got
0: got his hands in all kinds of Austin pies,
2: I guess so. I guess it's a British thing.
0: so gross. I handed it one for this week's
1: episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so Sleepy Hollow. We are all going to have to check that out. For sure. So uh, so Matt, what about you?
3: The thing that's been occupying a, a large chunk of my mental real estate lately has been uh, a new, well, new-ish uh, role-playing game system. I run what used to be a D&D campaign. Uh, D and D three point five, which is basically the same as Pathfinder, which you guys play. Right. And um, in the last couple months, we've switched over from D and D to a system called Fate. Which I guess the best way that I can think to describe the two systems is that if if you've got a a continuum of how crunchy and complicated your rules are, D and D is very much on the end of. Hey, I heard you like numbers, so I put some numbers in your numbers.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. It it
3: it it, it, can, it can it can especially as characters increase in level and and as your as the story goes on, it can acquire an awful lot of paperwork and bookkeeping.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, Fate is far towards the other end of the, of that spectrum, um, leaning far more heavily on story and kind of just extemporaneous role playing amongst players rather than dice numbers Th- there are still dice there are still numbers but they take a very much a secondary role to sort
1: of the to, collaborative storytelling yeah, element
3: yeah yeah um, the, the way kind of the basic mechanic of fate is that almost everything in the world uh, the characters the situations they're interacting with the non-player characters that they run up against the problems that they are facing are represented by phrases. And you can invoke or compel those phrases depending on whether you're doing it to benefit you or hurt somebody else. And that, you know, relying on that, that phrase, that, that aspect of your identity or of the scenario, lets you do better on a dice roll. So if you are rolling dice and your character is trying to successfully complete a podcast, um, and your character has the aspect I've done this a million times you can invoke the aspect I've done this a million times to give you a bonus on your role so you're more likely to succeed
0: we've done it at least six now
3: well so yeah I'd, I've done it at least six <laughs> times
0: with tech problems maybe
3: six and a half. <laughs> Well, the, the, the best aspects, at least for characters, are ones that are double-edged swords, in that the the characters can spend what's called a fate point, it's the basic currency of the game, to invoke it and give them a bonus. Or the GM can offer the character a bonus, uh, off, offer the character a fate point, in exchange for that aspect coming around to hurt them. So if, you know, again, in this podcasting scenario, if you had the aspect, we've done this like six times, um, I as the GM could say, all right, I'll give you a fate point if this goes horribly wrong because if you only you've only done it six times <laughs> and generally people are eager to uh, take that because the more fate points you have the more you can spend and the more things you can do and the more awesome you can be
1: huh so it so. sounds like it it's much more about the storytelling aspect and so the players need to have a much better handle on who their character is and what their backstory is like I'm thinking yeah my character in Pathfinder has a backstory but I've kind of left that on the back burner for the time being as we're sort of going about our adventure and I can participate really well with just sort of my dice rolls and my current abilities and whatever without thinking about really who I am.
3: Yeah, yeah. This, this takes that, that, that question of who, who you are and that puts it really on, you know, on, on the front burner. Hmm. It brings it to the fore um, you know, in, a, in a way that D&D doesn't necessarily do because it's very easy, especially if you're using published scenarios or you're just going through a dungeon and killing the monsters and taking their treasure, Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy to just let the numbers kind of be your identity in the game. Um, Because aspects of your character and aspects of the environment are such an important part of affecting how the dice go, um, those are much more important to have have them fleshed out.
0: Well it sounds like a much better kind of system for me because when we do play Pathfinder, um I often just refuse to do the math. Uh, so,
2: <laughs> so Is it because your husband is the DM? Maybe.
0: Oh, okay. So so, maybe. so so so
3: Sophie the math is optional, really.
0: <laughs> really. Well it's just like, you know, he'll be like, you know, you've been touched by a yellow ooze, take three con damage. And I'm like, nah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and part of the motivation for that is not wanting to take damage, and part of it is also con damage effects, all kinds of other rolls that you're gonna have to make, and it's pain in the butt to figure out what that's actually gonna do to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and
3: there, there, are, there are definitely advantages to that kind of system. D and D is far more of a a tactical game. It's well, it's as I think you talked about in your episode about yeah. Pathfinder. Its origin is a, a tactical war game. So there, there are those kind of elements. It's to a certain extent, it's the player versus the system in order to see who can win, basically. Yeah. Um, whereas in a more freeform system like Fate, it's all of the players together against themselves, against the world, against Fate, um, to create a story.
0: And I understand that you play this game uh remotely?
3: Yeah, yeah. I've got a group of friends uh from my undergrad and we play every week on Skype.
0: And is there is there like one that you prefer or things that you like about each different style of play? Like does do you find that playing online gives you more time to prepare each statement, whereas playing <laughs> Um, in you, person, you, you 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 you
3: you <laughs> seriously overestimate how much time I, I I actually put into preparing for things. I mean I I, I have a ton of different vague ideas percolating through my brain, mm-hmm. but the actual putting things in order that is often a last minute task.
0: <laughs> well, I just uh, I know that my my husband plays remote games as well, and the site that they use has a dedicated chat server. But I know he does a lot of of pre-writing and copy-pasting. So he'll kind of try to imagine what his players are going to do and then prepare a response for that action. Pardon me. And then sometimes sometimes he has to, you know, wing it. But he usually has at least <laughs> you know, a couple I, well, scenarios. That's
1: because we're all sort of still relative novices at this. We'll decide to do something that he hasn't anticipated because what we're deciding to do is kind of dumb <laughs> in the context of what he's preparing.
3: Well, well, that 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 is a proud role playing tradition. But my the the my players are very much a a disruptive force of chaos, both in the world and in the game. Uh, and, and, and so, so, so yeah, we 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 are currently at, I think, two cities that they have left without ruining their reputation, without getting the city authorities angry at them. We've been playing for, <laughs> well, this, this iteration of the campaign has been going for two years, and most of the time that they have been leaving a place, the place has just suffered an attack, has just had serious collateral damage inflicted by the party. Um, <laughs> Has arrest warrants out for the party, um, or sometimes all of the above.
0: Yeah, I think I think the one we did last week um, that that our DM wasn't expecting was we were going to feed a magical sword hidden inside a roast pig to the worm that lives at the bottom of Yggdrasil <laughs> to try to get rid of the magical sword. <laughs>
1: We went through several more logical options about magical people we could go to to find out exactly how to destroy this thing or taking it to the plane of dust or whatever. And then someone said, What about the worm? And then someone said, I bet these dwarves have
0: roast pigs. And it just. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: then we we forgot it was October. Yep. Which meant that as soon as we began to do anything, the mists enveloped
0: us and we went to ravenloft
3: because oh, I'm sorry
0: that's how he I'm so sorry. he does october's that's
1: where we were last october yeah
0: <laughs> son of a bitch but yeah you
3: you you, you asked about the kind of uh, the differences between kind of in person and remote i all else being equal, I prefer in-person gaming because you, you have so, a so much richer experience when you're interacting with people. You can see their body language, and you can have multiple conversations happening at the same time. You can have groups of conversations happening at the same time in a way that you can't really have on Skype. Um, but for me, the important you know the most important thing with gaming is the people that you game with. And the group that I have in this game, Are some of my closest friends and although a lot of them are back in minnesota where i'm from um, one's in california and another's in pennsylvania and being able to communicate with them every week is is far more important than whether it's in person or over skype or you know sent by email or or
0: something So when you play on Skype, are you playing uh, with voice, like everyone's using mics, or are you playing with text?
3: Uh, Voice generally. um, When I am portraying any of the multiple voices in the heads of one of my characters, um, (laughs) then I'm sending that as text messages. Okay. um, But mostly it's by voice.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you might need to run a fate game for us then. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
3: So <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure I'm going to have tons of time this <laughs> semester. Yeah,
2: time. yeah. You know, after this semester, I'm sure we can convince you to maybe stay an extra day to run a compa- campaign. Because <laughs> <campaign. laughs> <laughs> these
1: things always only take one day when you plan for them to only take one Oh, day. oh <laughs> of course. Exactly. Yes.
3: Yes. That, that's that's the way of these things.
1: <laughs> All right. So, Allie, what about you? Since we went to Word
0: Vancouver, have you been inspired to read this week? I was a little bit inspired to read. Um, I'm still going through the Great Gilmore Girls rewatch, which is always (laughs) super fun, Uh, especially because an episode I was watching um, the other day, um, Rory and Lorelai have some little quippy thing that they do, and it is something that my mother and I do all the time because we watch that show together. My husband was appalled because he was like, "Oh well, that's where that is that's where that is from, so um, I think my rewatch is revealing too much about myself
2: um <laughs> <laughs> <but> <laughs> also, <laughs> there, there is, are worse things yeah, there honestly are worse things <laughs>
0: <laughs> i've also I've also just started um a great Harry Potter reread, which I usually do i mean I used to do it every year, and I probably haven't done it for for three or four years now, so um, on book two, and it's it's always really fun to do the reread because you always notice things that you haven't noticed before or, you know, you have little arguments when you haven't read them for a while and then you get back to them and realize that um, your point was justified and your husband was wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> particular to this case was um, he thought that apparition was a, a function of the world that came up much later. Uh, like Rowling had not thought of it before, um, before you know, book four or something. But um, not true. It is mentioned in book two, so it does exist. When is that? It's uh, right after, or uh, well, right before Harry and Ron steal the car. Um, Harry's like, "Well, how are your parents going to get home?" And and Ron's like, "Well, they are. They can apparate. Yeah, they only bother with flu powder and shit because we can't. We can't do that." So that's a direct quote. Yes, flu powder and shit. I will give you a citation. It's been too long since
3: I have reread Harry Potter. I think I need to go back. I don't remember that kind of vigorous language.
1: Was like oh, it second years? Oh, it's there. Have
0: you ever heard a twelve-year-old talk? Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, uh, so I'm doing that. But I also um, got a couple of books out of the library that I that I'm going to start. I got. Um, the Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is a, a YA book that I've, I've never read that I probably should, just being the, the YA fiction lover that I am. And uh, I also got out uh, My Life in France, which is Julia Child's memoirs. Mmm. Bon appétit! i've never read them before but i love oh they're times. so good i love that book yeah so i i'm really looking forward to that and yeah trying to trying to get into more um more non-fiction i read i read a lot of fiction mary's having a fit <laughs> i don't know why
2: it happens honestly <laughs> just ask mad I,
3: I was i was about to say that it's like this is this is fairly
2: normal this is now back to our normal. Programming. <laughs> now back to our to our scheduled programming. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So trying to trying to read a little bit more that's not school related, and trying to get into nonfiction that's not school related. So, um, hopefully I'll be reading. Um, I'm also having a bit of a an exciting software week this week because mm. I'm doing a video project for one of my classes, and I'm going to give myself a day and teach myself how to use Final Cut because I've never done that and. Um,
2: What's your previous experience? Uh,
0: I've used I've used Camtasia and I've used a little bit of iMovie before, but um, they're boring. Mm.
2: <laughs> I know the feeling.
1: <laughs> I believe her exact words earlier were, "They're too
0: easy." Oh, they're they're a
3: little. That's dangerous.
2: Little, no, well, it is dangerous. But
0: um, I'm giving myself like pretty much a full day to to learn it and edit a three to five minute video. So I think I think I'll be all right. But uh, I will let you know next week how it went. <laughs> <laughs> dun dun
2: dun! Da-da. Da-da.
0: To wrap things up, then Sam, what have what's been on your mind, grapes? What have you been up to? Well, the reason I mentioned
1: Word Vancouver at the top as a potential inspiration for mind grapes related things um, is because after we visited the, I think it was the HarperCollins table at Word on the Street, of Word Vancouver. I'm going to keep doing that, um, and got our Divergent swag. Um, I decided to give Divergent a try. So it's a YA novel that I hadn't read before uh, by Veronica Roth, and it's very Hunger Games esque, um, and Hunger Games esque to the point where it has a you know strong, relatively interesting female heroine who's pretty messed up, and also whose goal in life is to you know stop some evil stuff instead of get a boyfriend. So that's always refreshing mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for fantasy YA. And it's it's well done. It's really simply written, but it has a really sweet little romance in it and and that was very well done. And the f- scenes of violence are very violent, which was also <laughs> actually really interesting to read. Um really well described. This sort of transformation of this girl from someone who's never fought before to someone who's in these brutal situations is yeah, really really interesting.
0: So what's the what's the basic story behind that one? I don't I don't know. Is it
1: So is it one of these um future dystopias where And again, it's the U.S. It's an area of the U.S., sort of around Chicago. It's always the U.S. It's always the U.S. Well, that's
3: that's because the U.S. is such an idyllic and functional place. Nothing would ever go wrong there.
1: Yes, (laughs) that's why they call it fantasy. (laughs) 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 The bigger they are, you know. Um, But anyway, so it's around Chicago, and it's again this division (laughs) into districts. But rather than the districts being based on what they produce, like in Hunger Games, it's um. They've divided themselves based on sort of the ideals they devote their lives to. Mm. So this girl starts out in the um, abnegation sector, and they're the ones who sort of devote their lives to selflessness. And she switches on her day of, you know, choosing when she's 16, whether she's going to stay with her home sector. Um, She chooses to switch to the Dauntless, who are the brave and sort of the ones who protect this whole subdivided area. From whatever there is on the other side of the city, which we don't know yet by the end of the first novel. Um, and there are the Amity, who devote themselves to peacefulness above all else, and the Erudite, uh, oh. self explanatory. Good, good choice of names. Yeah, yeah and, he, and the Candor are the last one. Ooh. So they never lie. That's their <laughs> thing. Nice. And uh, yeah, so it's really interestingly done. I mean, that could be a little more fleshed out. The parts about the Factionalists, which are sort of the Homeless, wandering people who have no place in any of the factions mm-hmm. aren't very well fleshed out. There are so many of them, it kind of makes you wonder whether they might revolt at some point. They don't seem to have done that, but pre- presumably that'll be dealt with in the other two books in the series. But it was it was interestingly done enough that I finished it in just a few days, sort of raced through. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. That's what's been on my mind grapes this week. I guess besides trying to kick this cold. <laughs> So we have two guests this week, and um, in addition to having double the guests, we're also going to have sort of double the segment here in a sense. What we're planning to talk about could fall under a where do we put this, Um, the issue of copyright and where things fall in different areas of copyright law or lack thereof, Uh, but there's also the issue of what libraries and other information organizations and information professionals can do to sort of contribute to the solution of the problem of modern copyright and so in a sense this is also a class z. Z z.
2: Z. Zed. z z Z, are z.
1: native soil people
2: you're outnumbered by americans and americans by being raised the virtue of being raised in america, in own an america. Home.
1: <laughs> it'll still be class z in my heart whatever you say
2: dear as
3: long say. as you admit that we won
2: <laughs> That's really the secret to uh, our hearts. You know, if we didn't
1: have so much interesting stuff to talk about, I would draw this out. But so Mary, do you want to sort of situate us here? So we're we're talking about copyright today, but we're talking about copyright in the context of sort of this particular thing that we all found out about recently. Do you want to give us a bit of backstory? Oh, um,
2: yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, a friend shared in the way that viral marketing campaigns tend to go. friend shared through social media. A link to this Indiegogo fundraiser for Star Trek Renegades, which is essentially a uh, fundraiser to create a pilot for a potential new Star Trek series uh, that eventually will be pitched to CBS slash Paramount Studios, who own the franchise and the intellectual property of Star Trek. so, basically, uh, this movement is spearheaded by Tim Russ, who is well-known as an actor from Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Yes. Yes.
1: Pretty much the best Vulcan. I think he's my favorite Vulcan, really. And
2: as a result, he's gotten all sorts of actors from the Star Trek universe to, uh, to reprise some of their roles, such as uh, Walter Koenig as Chekhov. Garrett um, Wang is in
1: there too, right? Garrett Ran- Wang is in there?
3: Mm hmm.
2: Oh, yes. But, but this is, this is what got me excited. So I first, there's also new faces involved, mm-hmm. including Cornemick. And he, in my heart, he is always Jonas Quinn from Stargate SG1. Yeah. And so I'm always like, oh, hey, Stargate Connection. So I got excited about that. But what I got even more excited about was that Grant Imahara from the Mythbusters is going to be a part of this, right? So I was like, (laughs) anything with Grant Imahara needs to happen. Like, his enthusiasm is infectious. Mm -hmm. I sat in a panel once with the Mythbusters, and I was just like, Grant, you can talk. All day, any day. You're so, like, geekily enthusiastic. So you
1: had, like, multiple levels on which to be excited about this. Yes. When you tweeted it, and that's how I found out about yeah, it, was I you tweeted tweeting about at me. it And, of
2: course, I, I was th- just
1: excited because new Star
2: Trek. Yeah, you, yeah, your thing was, like, <laughs> new Star Trek. I was just like, OMG, it's Grant Imahara. And then, of course, Matt also lurks on the Twitterverse.
3: Sometimes I post. All right. But most, mostly I lurk. And, yeah. <laughs> and as. You and, I,
2: you and I have that in common.
3: <laughs> as a, a dedicated, hardworking, well, not hardworking, dedicated, lifelong pessimist. Um, when other people would, you know, looked at this and they got really excited, I looked at it. And one of the first questions that pops into my head when I when I look at things, especially if they're things that other people are liking, um, because I'm kind of a terrible person. Um one of the first things that pops into my head is how can this go wrong? What is a pro- problem here? And Well, and
1: in this case you weren't wrong necessarily.
3: Yeah. Well, and and that that impulse, what is the problem here? And my interest in copyright issues in general um made me ask the question. All right, a bunch of fans are getting money to create a new entity in this existing intellectual property universe.
1: And we should probably be clear too that like this was not small potatoes. I mean they were I think their goal was an additional twenty thousand dollars to the already considerable
2: that was the it's, first step. I think it's right. I think it's
3: twenty thousand dollars for some more shooting, and then as as they got more, mm-hmm. there was more and more stuff. And so the, the total,
2: total budget to, here, at uh, the total extra budget, would have been uh we they could have raised up to two hundred thousand dollars, and at that like most ultimate level, they're like, hey, if we get that much money, then we can actually create the bridge.
1: Yeah, so, and so this was I mean the money is going into the production, exactly. but yeah. it's it's not so a small amount of money. There's,
3: there's a pile of money, and then People are getting things for that money that if you contribute at a certain level, you get the DVD, you get the poster, you get a signed plaque, you get a piece of the props. And Mm -hmm. so I saw this like, all right, I didn't know that this was a thing that could be done. How are they addressing the copyright issue? Mm -hmm. And so I looked on the fundraiser site. And I After looked, smashing
2: and I, my hopes and dreams by replying back well, to Well, and Twitter. also that reply Along was the
1: genesis for
3: this particular conversation. So. <laughs> um, but looked throughout the, the Indiegogo site. And they don't really engage with this question of what happens if the owner of that content shows up and is like, no, we're shutting this down. Uh, so that got... Mary and I arguing on Twitter. Um, generally, she's you know she was trying to see the best possible. Outcome and I'm like, well, what about this bad thing and this bad thing?
2: But Grant Amahara.
3: But do
1: Well and from conflict comes comes discussion, comes narrative, right? Which is what brought us all here together today. And exactly. it's why you know it ended examining up, the two sides of this is is really interesting. Yeah,
2: it ended up being a actually quite interesting topic to investigate because we're all librarians here, right? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was some fun researching going on.
0: So, so what did what did you find out in your in your research, Mary, when you were looking at the copyright issues here?
2: Um, well, I had been aware of previous fan efforts to create web series and different things like that, and one of those examples is Star Trek Phase Two, in which it's the like the uh, it's the five year mission of the Star Trek Enterprise that you never saw. Like, they are doing adaptations of original scripts that never, that were written, but never aired, you know. Like
1: Right, Phase 2 is actually Roddenberry's project in the very, very beginning, right? Yeah. He meant to do that before um, the first movie and never ended up yeah, doing it.
2: Yeah, and then, like, Eugene Roddenberry Jr. acts as a consultant, um, a consulting producer, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those things where it's, like, it was so popular that they had um, the original actors come, onto these web series to continue to portray their characters as like older or something, you know, like some sort of like mirror universe or something, something like that. And so I was like, well, wait, they're like on so many episodes and seasons. And like, I remember them being guests at Dragon Con, like featured guests. So like, why, why didn't Paramount shut them down? Mm-hmm. So when I looked at it further, uh, um, the, who's the person that started it all? Uh, James Crawley uh, is uh, one of the main movers in Star Trek Phase 2. And basically, uh, he stated in an article um, that you can totally find through citation on Wikipedia uh, on Star Trek Phase 2. But basically, he said that CBS and previously Paramount Pictures, uh, which owns the legal rights of the Star Trek, Franchise allows the distribution of fan-made materials, a fan-created material, as long as there's no attempt to cash in to and ma- so that's, to make a profit.
1: That's sort of in addition to the kind of satire and remix regulations in actual copyright, which don't necessarily apply to a thing that's yeah. just a continuation. Yeah, right? if
3: if if Paramount CBS wanted to, they could they could, they could send in the lawyers and have that thing shut down yesterday.
1: Hmm. And so I guess this kind of ties back, too, to the idea that a lot of the um, classic episodes of some of the series, The Next Generation especially, were written on spec by sort of ordinary people who sent in scripts, and Paramount was always very open to that. And so I wonder if that sort of,
2: mm. you know,
1: that initial fan-made content that became official was part of the impetus for continuing that yeah. policy. That's
3: interesting.
2: Might be. Not quite. Sure.
3: Yeah, cert. I mean, certainly, it's a a much more open, and I think a much more constructive way for a big media company to be handling, you know, the issues of an intellectual, a piece of intellectual property that is so popular and that resonates so strongly with so many people mm-hmm. that there are, you know, crowds of people lining up to throw money at pilots, not at a a web series, not at something that is actually going to be a thing, but at we are going to spend a lot of money to make a single episode that is going to attempt to persuade people to start this show up again.
2: Yeah. And I think the f- uh, fundraising for this Star Trek Renegades has already closed. <laughs> they actually raised something like uh, $137,000. Wow. Yeah. Um I definitely in, in know the most
1: 100. recent iteration of the fundraising. Uh
2: well they stopped yeah. like mid September. Yeah. So yeah. Um but um and it's such a I mean it's such an
1: old wrong. fandom yeah. like it makes so much sense. It's so oh responsible oh. in in a way for Paramount to decide to function that way in relationship with its fans because it is sort of the original one of these fandoms that that has oh, all of these is. people interested yeah. in creating their own Be- portions of it, Because right?
2: Star Trek Um, is one of the first originators of fan fiction. Absolutely. um, Kirk and Spock. Oh, yeah. Slash
3: fiction. I I believe you mean Spock.
1: Spock enslaved. Have you ever seen the cover of that one? That's one of the original ones from the first convention.
2: No, I have not. (laughs) We'll post that in the show notes. All I know is uh, my, my mom has a long history with Star Trek. Not necessarily attending conventions or anything like that but mm-hmm. she's always been like the closet sci-fi fan in our family but her thing growing up was always star trek
1: my mom too
2: yeah and then she like progressed staying up late at night watching doctor who like when it was on um pbs rewind right and everything like that so
3: well and and fan fiction and convention culture and you know things like cosplay which is in you know increasingly popular and increasingly exciting to look at when you think about um, people reporting from San Diego Comic-Con. One of the things that almost always appears is here is someone in an incredible costume from this other thing from this other piece of intellectual property. And it's interesting to me um, that, that there's these kinds of drives to create something new that is, based on the intellectual property of an existing franchise. Mm-hmm. And the original intent of the first English copyright laws um that statute of Queen Anne, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah um, was, we were in that class yeah. together
1: this summer, I think, no? Possibly. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, the intent of copyright originally is to encourage creators to create more stuff because more stuff is good for society not protecting creators money and and incomes because income is good for the creators but more stuff is good for society mm-hmm. and and
1: income allows the creation income, income of more allows
3: stuff and, and incentivizes yeah. the creation of more yeah. stuff and i think about there, you know, there are there are a number of authors who've gotten their start writing fan fiction, and whether they published that fan fiction or um, they took that fan fiction of debatable quality based on a series of debate uh, series of debatable quality in the case of Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. and then turned that into a cultural thing that people were talking about. Yeah. Um. You know. Whether they're doing that or they're getting their start writing fanfiction, learning how to write with fanfiction, and then turning to write other things. Or they're basically taking their fanfiction and publishing it in a slightly better form. One of my favorite light reading authors is... um, Her series is the Temeraire series. Right. uh, Naomi Novik. Mm -hmm. And the Temeraire series is basically fan fiction of Patrick O'Brien's nautical historical fiction, mm. except instead of sailing ships or alongside sailing ships, there are dragons in the Napoleonic <laughs> War. And dragons make everything better. So I guess going back to what might have been my original point, um, this kind of participation and engagement with, uh, with existing, with owned property really has a lot of benefits in terms of creative material that everyone can appreciate. And it's, it's a very good thing. I think that Paramount and CBS have are, are allowing and encouraging that sort of thing to fa to, to grow and develop. Uh,
1: they're taking, they're taking a long view of what this content that they own actually means. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I saw this, um, incredible quote somewhere and the exact wording is escaping me now but essentially it was making the point that fan fiction is reappropriating something that in a time before corporations and before copyright belonged to the people in the first place our folk heroes are now these characters that are in these novels and tv shows and movies that are owned by corporations but in times past those would have just been stories that we told each other and that everyone could tell their own version of
3: yeah yeah well and then and then in the in the case of c b s and paramount um if this pilot is done well and it gets a lot of interest, and they look at it and think, "All right, we want to make this into a show, they've already had that all that work done for free and yeah. you know and and a little of the re- the quote research unquote that i did for this uh was mm-hmm. uh looking up um the ferengi rules of acquisition <laughs> 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 and and, and rule number 3 is never spend more for an acquisition than you have to and so <laughs> encouraging the 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 creation of this especially not you know not for profit work really i think has the potential to rebound to the content owner's benefit.
1: Absolutely. It's not like they're making money off of it right now, right? No.
2: (laughs) And there's additional questions of, well, why aren't you paying the actors anything or anything like that? Well, you know, if this gets this pilot gets picked up as a series, bam, they have a job.
1: Yeah, not only do Tim Ross. Everyone's investing
2: all this effort and and money and expense and such with the hope that it will all pay off. So I
0: guess what I'm interested in too with this particular question is um with things like like Indiegogo with things like Kickstarter places where fans are being able to uh, to talk with their with their wallets as well as with their attention do you think this is going to change things for copyright does it need to change things for copyright is it you know is it is it important to the to the copyright process and the intellectual property process
3: I I think it's Regardless of Cbs's kind of good instincts or or benevolent instincts, I think benevolent is the right word there um, benevolent response to the question of fan created content. Um, I think this sort of thing is an example of some of the problems that 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 exist in copyright as it stands because there are a lot of content creating. Content owning corporations that don't allow this sort of thing, right? Um, and and even more than that, I think there's an increasing sense that people want to be able to consume their media in the way that they choose.
0: Yeah, we don't we don't want to be pirates. We pirate because it's. it's I mean, the there only there, there
3: there there are people who want to be pirates, and there are always going to be people, you know. <laughs> there are people who want to be pirates
0: it's a sexy lifestyle
3: there are also people who want to be copyright infringers and and you're never you know there are there are always going to be people who want to commit crimes or or who Mm -hmm. who don't care about giving money to the creators or the people who are actually doing the creative work
1: but your average person just wants it to be easy
3: yeah. They want the yeah. easiest route is, to, what they
1: want to watch or read or whatever, right? Yeah,
3: there is there is a there's a fantastic uh cartoon by The Oatmeal, um, web cartoonist theoatmeal.com, um where he explains his attempt to watch Game of Thrones. Uh-huh. And it's like a dozen panels of trying various legal means to get a Game of Thrones episode onto his computer. And if you don't want to give money to the cable company and you don't want to give money to the TV manufacturing company, you just want to watch the thing on your computer. It's clear that there is no technological hurdle, or at least the technological hurdles are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Um, we have solved the problem of taking a TV episode and putting it on a computer screen.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um If you paying for want, it, though. Yeah, yeah. Paying for it is is a problem. And, you know, I, I am a fan of the Game of Thrones series, the books. I'm a fan of the show. I, I want to give HBO my money. Mm-hmm. So that I can I can watch this beautiful beautiful intro and then the hour of of episode that follows the, <laughs> the the hour of episode that follows is good too but but really the reason I'm watching is for that map and the little clockwork castles and, and
1: that map and the little clockwork castles probably cost more to put together and maintain <laughs> than a whole season of say a network TV show and that's what's mind-boggling to me is that something like Game of Thrones is so expensive to produce but so difficult in some ways to monetize when it comes to your average consumers. I mean, if I want to watch Grey's Anatomy and I want to do it legally, I go to ctv.com and I watch it. And sure, there's commercials, but it's there. It's stable. I can watch it. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, with, with with HBO products in particular, there's, there's an additional kind of complication in that it's their business model involves getting money from the cable companies. And for whatever reason, they have chosen not to kind of strike out on their own. Maybe that would Interrupt the flow of money from the cable companies um, maybe well, I'm pretty sure I've seen articles talking about cable company representatives or uh employees expressing concern that if h b o leaves cable subscriptions are going to fall. Mm. Um, because there's an awful lot of cable that is pretty terrible
1: <laughs> yeah and there's an awful lot of cable content that's legally accessible by other means right yeah. when it comes to the network stuff yeah,
3: yeah. so I you know I think with, with HBO there's a how do they want to sell their 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 product but um, that's that's conflicting with how how fans want to access that same product
2: mm-hmm. and there's so many online platforms nowadays to ex- access these old. Alternative content and such. I mean, uh, I think because we're in Canada, we're we are so used to having things denied to us unless we have some sort of other ways of masking one's IP address. Yeah, step
0: the fuck up, Netflix Canada. We're serious.
2: <laughs> but um, but in the states, I want scrubs, damn it. <laughs> uh, but in the states, there's things like Hulu and other other platforms where it's like oh you know you don't want uh you might want to watch an episode from abc onto or nbc uh without commercials that you would just see Mm -hmm. just on the network's website you go to like hulu or hulu plus then oh well if you pay just a small fraction of money you don't have to worry about Marshalls. yeah i mean this you know, Netflix so, model
1: is catching on in other mm-hmm. places and it is a it is seems to be a more if not sustainable than at least reasonable model i mean so i guess that that brings us to the issue of sort of like what's broken about this system because like matt was saying there's no there are no technological barriers to this anymore the barriers are legal and also national barriers
3: right? yeah well i you know personally i don't you know as as much as i am irritated by the fact that if i want to watch game of thrones i have to go find a friend who has cable and is getting hbo and go go watch with them um you know as 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 irritating as that is that i don't think is the real problem with copyright i think i think the real problem with copyright is that it is increasingly eternal that if you've got you know you you mentioned earlier that our our folk heroes you know the folk heroes of today are are these pieces of intellectual property
2: like Mickey Mouse? Right. It kind of all well started uh, with Mickey Mouse. And and,
3: and if you will got
2: die
0: a, with Mickey Mouse,
3: <laughs> which is to say never.
1: You'll uh, <laughs> pry modern copyright for Mickey Mouse's cold, dead end.: Dead
3: exactly, white, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so if if the I, I, think, I think I think the brokenness enters the system where you the goal the original goal of copyright is this is a system that society has created to regulate what is created in order to encourage the creation of more stuff. And that requires that at a certain point, existing stuff be made free for people to draw upon and use and recreate. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like this Star Trek pilot wouldn't be possible if it was a company like Disney, who is generally much, much harsher with their co- with their control of their intellectual property, um, even to the extent of every so often there's a news article about another, another daycare or kindergarten has had to paint over their Mickey Mouse Donald Duck mural.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, Not
1: to mention the fact that the extension of American copyright has been Disney propelled in a lot of ways. Right. Right
3: right um and so you know the, the fact that that copyright terms in the US at least um are now life of the creator plus 95 years Oh, yeah. um,
0: bro are you serious yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah. yeah. that yeah. that that
3: is that is that is the current and a lot of term. that has
1: been lawyers who work for disney being in on those hearings
3: well, and, and, you know, in the, in the Disney example, a, a few of the classic Disney films, if this copyright had existed, they couldn't have made those films. Absolutely. Um, the Jungle Book was uh, published in 1894. Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling, the author, died in 1936. According to the now life of author plus 95 years, um, it wouldn't be legal to create new content based on that until 2035. <laughs> um the little mermaid, uh Hans Christian Andersen died in 1875. Um Well that actually that, that isn't a good example. <laughs> <laughs> um right that, right so that that, 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 roll that Again. One,
1: that one's sort of a hotel, yeah. right? yeah. Well that yeah. that
3: uh, that one could have worked. Um but an, another classic, um one that was one of my favorite Disney films when I was little. Um, to the extent that I, I named my favorite stuffed animal after the main character oh, um, was had,
2: a heart. had had Oh had a heart past tense. Okay. this is, this
3: is when I was tiny. Um,
2: oh, did you have a beard then too <laughs> <laughs> No, I just. haven't
1: sorry <laughs> no, this 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 this, this
3: this 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 beloved childhood film of mine um, Alice in Wonderland, which looking oh, back yes. now, I don't know why i why I was so obsessed <laughs> with it um but that would only have been copyright free in uh nineteen ninety three based on Lewis Carroll's date of death, and the film was produced in nineteen fifty one so I think the the idea of copyright itself is not a bad one. Content creators need to be paid for the content they create, both to encourage new stuff and to reward the people who create things that we find of value. Absolutely.
1: I mean, I think the key word there, too, is people, right? Yeah. Like, you see Disney taking advantage of that, and you think, well, you know, when Rudyard Kipling and Hans Christian Andersen and Lewis Carroll were creating these things, they were individuals. Who were creating these things, and maybe they sold the rights to some sort of small publishing house, but that was it that was a, as big as it got, whereas this this not just tendency but sort of legal entrenchment now of the idea of corporations being treated like people under the law causes a lot of these problems. They are able to pool their resources and take advantage of the fact that this has only existed for not even a century right yeah
3: yeah, and you know I think I think one of one of the one of the problems is not that content costs money to access but rather that so much of the content that exists the reason that it costs money is just the desire of the corporate owner to squeeze a little more
1: mm-hmm.
3: And I think I think there's 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 a there's a huge difference between not paying someone at all and conducting yourselves Ferengi style <laughs> where it's just and right and accepted that you give all of your money to the people who have the power because they are able to demand that you give them their money for this thing. And I, you
1: take those posters down or they shut down your daycare. Right.
3: Right. And I think copyright is broken in that it is it has gone f- too far in the one direction, and if we can move it back, then okay.
2: <gasps> Wait, was that optimism that I just <laughs> kind of witnessed there? Well, Matt? there's
3: there's there's an if in that statement. Oh, so
2: it could and go, it's a go horribly big wrong, wrong if, and that's given what the current conduct of yeah. companies like Disney. But, True. Yeah. Wait, you mean there's not hope in Canada?
1: Well, in Canada, it's still life plus 70, I think. Okay. And so that's at least slightly more reasonable, but it has become inflated over time, Mm -hmm. for sure. We have some of the same exceptions. In some cases, they're a little narrower, I think. But we have Mm -hmm. some new ones now for education and satire and things like that, which Mm -hmm. allow the use of copyrighted materials. But it's still, it's not a fully functional Oh, that's right. Because for
2: a while, there was recently legislation passed where now you can show YouTube videos of, like, YouTube uh, content created for YouTube in educational classrooms, for educational purposes. Because before, you couldn't show anything with the nerd fighters dftba (laughs) uh you couldn't show you couldn't show anything like any of their crash course courses and like biology or history or anything like that because which which are amazing and everybody should watch and this this is a biased group as
1: well right yeah yeah, yeah. that would be covered under the education exceptions now
3: Uh, well see the, the problem with both the you know well the defining feature. I don't know that it's necessarily a problem. Um, it's certainly not a problem in the same way that length of copyright is a problem. The defining feature of both U.S. fair use and Canadian fair dealing is that it is all hugely interpretive. That yes. each, you know, each kind of case depends what the material is being used for and how likely that is to affect, um, affect the value of the original content. So mm-hmm. if, if it's just an image on a wall, then that isn't really serving an educational purpose. That's not really serving a... Well, it, it might be serving a satirical purpose if it's from a graffiti artist <laughs> like Banksy or something. Yeah. In in which case, then the the parody or the, the satire purpose that's. is more likely to make it okay.
1: And it's funny, interpretability in the law is another one of those things that is a holdover from a time where the people arguing either side of, of cases like these would have had reasonably similar resources behind them. And at the risk of continuing to let my socialist flag fly here, (laughs) corporate lawyers, you know, are able to force that interpretation in a way that maybe the lawyers for
3: well whoever's trying to use the content. Well, well and and in the case of, of fan created content or or of fans engaging with the content in ways that the corporation doesn't necessarily permit. Um like with youtube with people posting clips of you know their favorite scene from a movie or their favorite scene of their favorite character from a movie with their favorite song layered over the top Mm -hmm. um which i i hate when i encounter that i'm like i'm looking for the movie scene i don't want to hear your favorite (laughs) appalling song hey
2: hey hey don't trash There are some really good put-together fan vids.
3: Mary, I don't want to hear your favorite appalling song.
2: No, 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 no. No, No, there's actually, I was going to say, there's a really good remix of, um, I don't normally advocate um, such earworms, but uh, there's a version of uh, Kesha's TikTok with clips from Star Trek. (laughs) And they just line up like as she's telling the story, you know, we kick them to the curb unless they look like McJagger. And yeah. then like you see, uh, um, who's who is Ronnie Howard's uh, Run Run Howard's brother who uh, played Clint Clint. Yeah. Clint Howard, his character from Star Trek, like shows up. You know, there, well, there's there's
0: another there's another amazing one that I I am not ashamed to admit actually made me cry. We
2: will post links.
0: When to I, oh yes yeah it's all gonna go in the doobly doo. Um, no, one that I'm not ashamed to admit made me cry was someone did a compilation of um science fiction ships to Nicki Minaj's starships. Oh, and yes, it's amazing. I that. And that I just remember watching one. it and just like tears streaming down my face because I was like, it's all the ships I love. <laughs> I know those ships, I love those ships so, it, and so it, that's it, exactly the
1: fact that we're devolving into this yeah right? yeah
3: yeah so this 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 interesting it's you know, relevant this is yeah yeah, yeah this this, is this, it, this 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 tangent you know ties back into the question you know you've got fans interacting with the material in new ways and like new things that
1: move
2: you mm-hmm. yeah yeah. and the fans and, invest right yeah and create this new content
3: and and this the you know you were talking about the the scales of justice being a little stacked when it's a person trying to use something against a corporation. But there's there's even less wiggle room for fans in the case of something like YouTube, where if a company hits YouTube with a DMCA takedown notice, YouTube is going to respond to it like that. I mean there was there was there was a news story uh, that either appeared or reappeared. Um, a couple weeks ago, that Lawrence Lessig, the nice. the, 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 e, the Electronic Frontier Foundation yeah, super, super uh, copyright, copyright reform guy, um, he'd made a video demonstrating fair use. And a, a corporation's automated, we detect our content bot, detected it, and sent a takedown notice. And YouTube responded like that because that's that's kind of what they have to do as a business entity, mm-hmm. that they open themselves to so much liability um, and such a messy legal process if they if they if they try and fight on behalf of every one of their users because let's face it there's a lot of infringing content on YouTube. Um,
2: oh, and, oh, but you know, but what what do they post? Oh well, well that's that, that, you
3: know that that's another thing you know an interesting thing about. I have found a lot of the you know infringing content that you'll see on on YouTube the the appalling remixes of. Favorite song and favorite character that I that I happen to dislike. Um,
2: you dislike everything, Matt. It's normal. <laughs> it's well, normal, yes, Matt.
3: Well, yes. I but think the, we've the, established the, the, that
0: anyway. he likes Alice in Wonderland. Oh, liked, that's...
3: liked.
0: <laughs> you know, you know when you he still had a heart. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, no, but a, a lot of a lot of that kind of video, you will see people writing in the description of their video: no copyright infringement attended. All. Rights to Universal, sometimes, sometimes, and this amuses me, they'll say, no copyright intended. <laughs> but it's, it's clear that what they're saying is, I know this belongs to somebody else. Yeah. I don't want to make money off of it. Yeah. I just want other people to be able to enjoy this thing that I have that I am enjoying. And the fact that our modern system of copyright doesn't make allowances for that. I think is something that it would be very good if it can change.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think we were we we're, we're talking a bit before this about, you know, what we think libraries might be able to do. We're all about to be professional librarians. Mary <laughs> is officially one this year. Thankfully. I am
2: very, very <laughs> and, blessed.
1: You know, and it makes you want to do something. and, and Libraries are so good at protecting certain things. You were talking about banned books earlier. Yeah. The fact that we get so up in arms about, Mm -hmm. you know, a book that was written 50 years ago being moved or removed from the library, but we're not able to protect these people who are protect or arm these people who are just trying to make new interesting things.
2: And also, there's also issues of protecting ourselves as professionals as well, because um, who is the librarian that I'm thinking of? Where the publisher went after the librarian over in East oh, Coast. Oh
3: yes, I just uh, saw a panel of Toronto him. Toronto or Ottawa, I think. Um, this, it 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 happened this spring and summer. there yeah, was, there, and there, was then, there was a professor. I oh think.
2: oh, Dale Askey. Okay. Dale Askey. Yes. He was on an Access um uh, conference that I saw recently, and he was on there, and I was like, why does that guy look familiar? Oh yeah, that's right, Dale Askey. <laughs> you know, but yeah. He,
3: he he had he had criticized. Uh, he was he was producing material that was critical of certain scholarly publishers, primarily because of their copyright policies, mm-hmm. um, and the publishers tried to sue him and his university. Eventually, they dropped the suit against the university because there was so much flack. I don't know if they dro- have dropped the individual suit or what is happening with that. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 issue of copyright I find is something that. The broad issue, we don't, I don't feel like we engage with the broad issue enough that di- the different varieties and and specialties of librarianship and the information professions each have their own little facet of the problem. Scholarly librarians, academic librarians are encountering scholarly publishing problems and, and dealing with copyright and access to information that are that their institution has produced with their institution's money that they then have to turn around and pay a publisher for mm-hmm. um public librarians are dealing with ebook copyright and ebook rates and and that sort of thing and I actually suggested this in a discussion in uh, the digital libraries class that I'm taking. Uh, We were talking about rights and stuff, particularly in the context of eBooks last week. And I, I asked, why don't we have an ALA Fixed Copyright Week? We've got a Banned Books Week. And I think placing the issue of censorship on that kind of high level, like this is one of the defining things that we as a profession need to work on. Um, helps tie in the individual instances of anything that's related to censorship back to that big issue.
2: So, but I think that also um, something to consider that I just thought of is that censorship, uh, recognizing and raising awareness uh, with censorship, uh, it goes against First Amendment rights correct, of the United States and the American Library Association, which is a major motivating factor in creating censorship uh, awareness and censorship week and different things like banned books week, things like that uh, is a big motivating factor in this. But when we consider something like intellectual uh, property and copyright, who are the major players here? You know, corporations who are just, a little bit beat i don't know sort of well, like I mean, a little more there are there yeah.
3: are plenty of major players already there i mean if you mm. look at uh things like the fight to defeat uh sopa pippa the stop mm-hmm. online piracy yeah. act and whatever pippa stood for um <laughs> a, a, a pr- protection of In- intellectual property act maybe yeah. anyway anyway that that uh storm that erupted on the internet. Um, there were definitely people leading the charge ag- against it from a, we need to work to to make, we need to work to make culture and the production of creative work function better. Yeah. And...
1: That's where Lawrence Lessig is coming from. Yeah. He was involved in that remix yeah. documentary, right? And that was fascinating as well, right around that time.
3: Yeah. And I, you know, I think... It is a more complicated issue. It's not as easy to put into black and white terms as uh, the issue of should you ban books or not?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, and not to mention, too, as Mary was saying, I mean, not banning books is in the interest of the corporations who own the publishing houses, who own the author's rights to those books, right? Yeah. Not banning books equals selling more books to individuals, to libraries reforming copyright law to allow for more cultural engagement has a much fuzzier outcome and possibly a negative one for those same corporations. Right. right? But,
3: but I think as information professionals, if our our mission, if our overarching goal as librarians or as archivists is to connect people with ideas, whether it's information or culture or creative, if that's our mission, then we shouldn't let the companies aren't going to be on our side. Oh, absolutely. Stand in the way of us saying, look, we as a group need to recognize this as a problem. We need to, you know, even if it's as simple as when, you know, Fixed Copyright Week comes around, and hopefully there will be a better name for it than that because that's a little clunky. <laughs> um, yeah, like it.
2: where's Myron Groover? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Speak his three his name three times and he will appear.
1: <laughs>
3: Myron, if you're listening, we love you
2: very much. It's true, very much. You better be listening.
3: Anyway, you know, if if when 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 this rolls around, you know, even at the very basic level, it it would be a great opportunity for libraries and information institutions to help educate their patrons and their users about some of these complicated issues that people don't understand you know the way that people post on on YouTube no copyright intended
1: <laughs> yeah. sh- sh- shows that
3: that, that that people you know many people have some there understanding is it is that there is a thing and, and I'm and I'm and I might get in trouble yeah. if I do it wrong and you know improving that that understanding you know is is helpful in its own right and it is also going to be helpful if we ha- are going to have any hope of changing this.
0: Well, I think these are some really amazing sentiments. Um, all, now, been... all,
3: all that the, the listening world needs to do is make me king <laughs> of North America. <laughs> Give me a nice crown or a cape. I'm not, I, either one is fine, and I will, I will, I will issue decrees to make this happen.
2: Talk about job security, Matt. You have it all figured out after graduation. I know Holly. it's going to be great.
0: Well, we wish you the best of luck, and uh, I just want to say thank you, guys, so much for for coming on the podcast. This has been an amazing discussion, and I'm really glad that we were able
2: to have it. Yeah, It was a oh. pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for inviting
3: us. It was it was fun.
1: <laughs> Alright, so that's our show for this week. That was a doozy. That was a doozy. That I'm was exhausted. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one that's sick. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that was great. That was such a really interesting discussion. I feel like I mean, we talked for
0: almost an hour about it, and we
1: barely scratched the surface. Yeah,
0: we're. I think we're definitely going to have to have a part two mm-hmm. of this discussion, and maybe um, we'll uh,
1: invoke Myron's name a third time. <laughs> 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 um, but no, I mean that was that was great, and really, what we're interested in too is, you know, our librarian and proto-librarian, and just interested in
0: copyright issues. Listeners out there, what do you think about all of this? Yeah, please let us know. Get in touch with us and. Tell us what you think. And let me tell you, there are so many ways that you can do that. It's true. <laughs> we're on uh, we're on Twitter with our own handle now at SSLibrarianship. Librarianship. Um and if you want to get in touch with us individually, Sam is at spinning Sam. And Allie is at Bulbasauria. And if you want to get in touch with our guests this week, uh they are also uh active on Twitter. Um uh, Matt is at Winter King07. And Mary is at M Jingles, And we'll make sure that we uh, link to all
1: of that in the show notes as well. Unfortunately, without a picture of Matt doing his world-famous
0: grumpy cat impression, <laughs> we weren't <laughs> able to snap that tonight. He's put a moratorium on that one, I think.
1: <laughs> you can also find all of that and more at our website, sslibrarianship.com, which now also includes uh, a link to sign up for a mailing list. So if you'd rather get an email every week when the show comes out, we can hook you up with that.
0: Well, thanks so much again for listening. Um, We are really happy with this particular (laughs) episode, I think. Yeah,
1: we think we covered a lot of ground there, although there's more ground to cover, and it's going to be really interesting to see how this whole Star Trek Renegade situation shakes out as sort of a an exemplar of this new system in action on a really large level with a lot of People and money involved. So <laughs> that'll be, yeah. Uh, so, anyway, you know, thanks as always to Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. Uh, we hope that all of you have given that a listen by now, but if you <laughs> haven't, there's lots of ways to get a hold of it iTunes, jonathancolton.com, and so forth.
0: And I'm going to leave you guys all with a little bit of Twitter weirdness this week. Um, we just got followed on Twitter by HarperCollins Canada. Woo! And uh, Sam tweeted me about it, and I was just like, what? so uh, uh, not that we're upset about that that is
1: fabulous we've actually we've been gaining speed a bit on our twitter so (laughs) that's uh, that's good to know that you guys are listening and enjoying and please let us know what you think about this episode or any of the others as you're listening through
0: and uh, tell your friends to follow us on tumblr because we've been stuck at 99 followers for a few days and we're trying to announce that as a milestone I have celebration gifts in reserve they are (laughs) waiting for that 100th follower (laughs) Well, thanks again so much, you guys. This has been uh, the SS Librarianship Podcast Episode 7. We hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side.
2: So I was so worried about whether Stargate Renegades was going to actually happen or not because of its legal status involving the uh, intellectual property of Star Trek. And I was so worried that I actually ended up dreaming that I had met Walter Koenig, who played Chekhov, and I said, Oh, I saw that you were involved with this Indiegogo, you know, a uh, fundraiser, you know, what is the legal status I must know? And he brushed me off with some sort of random gerbil of words, I guess, because it didn't make sense in my dream. And then I woke up.